So say you get the dreaded call from school that your kid did something and all of a sudden you feel guilty, you feel blame, you feel shame, you feel all these feelings. And then you feel like, you know, you didn't teach your kid that. So how could they have done that? Right. That those, so those feelings. So when you are in that elevated state and you are frustrated and you, you can feel the blood pumping or your child's done something, even if it's something as simple as like, for me, we had exchange tunes for several years and it was getting in the car for school in the morning and they would be late. And I'd be like, don't, you know, I have a meeting with, you know, my staff or like everything seems so more important to me than them getting in the car. And I would, you know, I, I don't like to admit this, but I did yell at them at times and I always regretted it and apologized for it, but it's whatever thing in the moment with your child that you are feeling that um, your heart starts pounding, you're, you're, you're sweating, your cheeks starting to get red. Whatever you say to your child in that moment, they are not in the state of mind to be able to learn from that situation. So we're really doing more harm than good. So the, the first thing I say to parents is just, just stop talking, just take a breath, take a pause, breathe before you say anything. And if you, if you can't say anything to them, just let them know you're really upset right now and you're not sure what you're going to do, but you'll let them know at a later time. Hi, I'm Sandy Fowler, and you're listening to Mighty Parenting, a podcast where we explore parenting in a way that helps us and our kids find more happiness and fosters emotional wellness, even while solving problems with our teens and young adults. We learn through advice and stories from experts and other parents, and I'm so glad you've joined us. So welcome to Mighty Parenting, where we have real, raw, and relevant talk about raising teens and parenting young adults in today's world. Our conversation today is with Karen Jakubowski. Karen holds a doctorate in educational leadership and has 20 years of experience that have led her to becoming an international influencer who helps kids lead happier, healthier lives. And today she is joining us on Mighty Parenting so we can have a conversation about challenging behavior in our teens. Karen, welcome to Mighty Parenting. Andy, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I have been excited about this conversation because in looking through your work, there's so much synergy between what you're doing with teens and what I do with parents. And so I am really interested because I think I think there's so much that happens in families that just some even simple calming behaviors and things can help you know, parents, we get triggered. And one of the things, of course, that triggers us is challenging behavior, right? A behavior that pushes our buttons. And that's how I think of challenging behavior. But in your work, what do you, how do you define challenging behavior? Well, if I can just kind of go back to the first thought you mentioned, it's funny because I was just talking to a parent the other day who I'm, I'm coaching in my, in my live parenting course about challenging behaviors and what do you do and what do you say and what questions do you ask? And she said, Karen, my first two kids were not challenging kids. So people look at me like I'm a good parent, but yet now my third kid is not, doesn't have challenging behaviors all the time, but sometimes I don't know how to manage my stress level, my triggers. And it's, you know, she was just sharing that sometimes it, it looks like parents are okay because maybe they have one, one kid that does okay. And people think they have all the answers and they really don't like nobody has that magic, you know, book about my kid. And so to define challenging behaviors, really it's anything that your child struggles with, whether it's a meltdown or they get in trouble at school and they, they, they just shut down 
or they shut down on you and you can't figure out why your kid is shutting down. Maybe your child isn't talking to you and they just shut down. So my meaning of disruptive behavior is pretty much any challenging behavior that you kind of don't know how to navigate as the parent and it leaves you feeling helpless. And that's where I come in to share an approach that has worked for me as I've learned it over the years. Um, and sometimes I think people think, well, my child might need a psychologist or a therapist. And yes, they all have their place. And I'm not saying that your child might not need them, but because of this, these tips and tools and little processes that I've learned and practiced over the years, I feel like if I could learn it and I could teach parents, they could feel more empowered when their child struggles or has behavior or has you know, difficulty with a peer conflict or shuts down or has a tantrum. Well, learning the, the first tools is really the first thing to do. I think I absolutely believe in counseling and therapy and all those things, just like I believe in medication and surgery. I also believe that I don't want to start with surgery as my first choice. If I'm having a problem in my body, I want to start with diet and exercise and maybe rest in some of those other, I think of them as kind of low key supports for our body and ourselves. And I feel like the work you're doing is this, it's similar, except now we're talking about those, those kind of first line supports for our mental and emotional state. It's a good way to put it. I like how you put that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then if they don't work, you know, you could always seek extra additional supports and therapists. But what I love about the collective problem solving process that we'll get to in a few minutes is it really helps keep the connection and relationship between you and your child that sometimes gets broken when there is a challenging behavior. I was talking to a mom actually yesterday and she was going through an exceedingly challenging time with a child who, who is a challenging child through just circumstances. That's just the body and the brain that this person was given. And it's a difficult one to navigate the world with. And the mom was using all her tools and she was just, she was worn down, but what she didn't see, what what she saw in the moment was this particular situation that she was in wore her down that, that like that one night. But what she didn't see was that everything she had done had built such a strong connection that her child was coming to her in their most vulnerable, scary moments. And this is a teenager. I'm not talking about a small child coming to you when they're scared and vulnerable. I'm talking about a teenager who is naturally, normally pulling away from us, which is healthy. But we also want them to come to us when they really need us. And I, so I love what you said there, that you work with parents, you give them these tools, but the tools actually help maintain that connection. Talk to me about why and how the connection tends to break down when we're dealing with challenging behaviors in our kids. So because the adult gets emotionally charged in the situation, or so say you get the dreaded call from school that your kid did something and all of a sudden 
you feel guilty, you feel blame, you feel shame, you feel all these feelings. And then you feel like, you know, you didn't teach your kid that. So how could they have done that? Right. That those, so those feelings. So when you are in that elevated state and you are frustrated and you, you can feel the blood pumping or your child's done something, even if it's something as simple as like, for me, we had exchange students for several years and it was getting in the car for school in the morning and they would be late. And I'd be like, don't, you know, I have a meeting with, you know, my staff or like, everything seems so more important to me than, than getting in the car. And I would, you know, I, I don't like to admit this, but I did yell at them at times and I always regretted it and apologized for it, but it's whatever thing in the moment with your child that you are feeling that um, your heart starts pounding, you're, you're, you're sweating, you're starting, your, your cheeks starting to get red. Whatever you say to your child in that moment, they are not in the state of mind to be able to learn from that situation. So we're really doing more harm than good. So the, the first thing I say to parents is just, just stop talking. Just take a breath, take a pause, breathe before you say anything. And if you, if you can't say anything to them, just let them know you're really upset right now and you're not sure what you're going to do, but you'll let them know at, at a later time. So I really do a lot of work on getting the parent calm and in control of their own body before they address or respond or react. And so um, that's, that's, that's the biggest state because if you... If your child knows you're always upset when they do something wrong, the connection in the relationship is, is just broken each time. And that's hard for kids to come back and trust, trust a person who they feel that with time and time again. But when you can actually take a breath and pause and step away from the situation and get calm and in control of your body and not talk to them until they're calm and in control of their body, those are two really key pieces to this whole equation working in a connecting way. Then when you use words like, hey, I noticed you, you, you did such and such or this such and such happened, what's up with that? With an even tone of voice and talking to them in that kind of calm way, it, it actually creates the opportunity for them to take a risk to really open up what, what's really vulnerably going on inside of them. And they, and they, because you're not talking to them through a blame or criticism, they feel safe enough to, to, to talk with you. And that's the beauty of, of really capturing, keeping that relationship all throughout. So when I was an assistant principal and kids would get in trouble and get sent to my office, the teachers would get upset because they wanted them to like feel the pain and, and they do they know what they really did that was wrong. And I never treated the kid like that. I never talked down on them. I never raised my voice. And over time, I, I would get that kid to tell me what happened. And the most beautiful part was I, I, I built a relationship with that kid through their most difficult moments because of this process and how it was handled. And that's the beautiful process I teach parents. What happens in your process where everybody's calming, the parents are getting control of their body, their emotions, allowing the child to get control of theirs. And this brings peace and opens up a time for vulnerability. When we're not doing that, what kind of oftentimes got us to this point in the first place seems like it would just be escalating. If, if you're angry, they get, they get angry and frustrated and their responses are viewed as inappropriate or hurtful. And so we get more upset and we say things to them that are inappropriate or hurtful and it just kind of escalates the situation. And then what you're doing is saying, okay, here's another way. We're going to deescalate this situation. Is that right? Yes. 
I never talk to a kid when they are not calm and in control of their body. So I'll have them sit if they're falling apart. I don't stare at them, but I keep in my peripheral because everybody feels awkward with you staring at them. And so over time, I've learned to just keep them in my peripheral. And sometimes I set a timer and just hold it so they can see it for like two minutes. And it just lets them know. And I, and I don't say anything. That's a really big key piece to this. Adults talk way too much too often in those strenuous moments. The kid needs the quiet to slowly calm down on their own. And you can't get a kid to calm down on their own. That child can only calm down as quick or as slow as they are going to do it themselves. And so that's, that's a real key piece of this whole thing that you are, you have to commit to yourself that you're not going to talk to your child till they're calm and in control of their body. So let's take this into the home. You said, you know, you'll have the child sit there, give them time and space and still watch them. How would that translate to a moment in the house? If, if our teen is, if our teen's upset about something and they're standing there and yelling or crying or whatever directed at us, what can we do in that moment? And then, you know, like if they leave the room, do we follow them? Do we say something to them before giving them that space to let them know what's happening? I, I'm trying to get a visual for at home with, you know, the upset teen and how that interaction might look. So if the teen was upset physically in the space with you, then I would just step away from them and just keep them in my peripheral, but I would, I would let them get it out of their system until they calm down. And I, and I wouldn't even say anything to them because when we say things, it, it charges it. And especially, I mean, if, if you're going to say anything, what I have said, said is you look like you need time to get calm and in control of your body. And that's all I'll say. And then they slowly I'm on their own time, calm down. Now, teenager, they may just go to their room and storm to the room, slam the door. And I would leave them until they were calm and in control of their body before I would address the situation. So maybe if, if it's in the evening or they did it right when they came home, it might not be something that you address till like after dinner time. Like maybe, maybe they're calm and in control, but you might be able, you might need to wait 30 minutes. You might need to wait an hour. We've waited like two hours before we, talked about a situation with a kid because in that heightened moment, they, they're not thinking clearly, they're not thinking logically and they eventually will mirror you. So if you're calm, they will eventually come down and be calm. But so often we do the opposite. We elevate and they elevate. And, and if you think that, if you can remember that picture, your child is a mirror of you. What am I doing? That's what they're going to mirror. It's so powerful. How does this work, or I don't know if anything is different, with the child who, rather than lashing out, tends to withdraw? So you probably are going to sense that same thing, that they're not ready to talk about it. I mean, sometimes you can ask a kid, like, do you want to talk about it? And they'll be like, no, 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 no. But the most important thing is not to forget to come back to that conversation. Sometimes we go on because we think things are calm and, and, and they're okay now, and we just move on with life. But I really want to just challenge you to, at a later time, 
give, give it 30 minutes, give that same child an hour and come back to it in the way of saying, I noticed and say exactly what you noticed, what happened earlier. Or even if it was, I know you don't really see yourself, like what's up with that? And I use that question, what's up with that? And I just wait that impregnable pause. That's so hard for us to wait because we just always have so much to say, but really like limit your words and give them that time to think. And a lot of times they're like, I don't know, or they shrug their shoulders. And then I use this magical question. If you did know, what would you say? And eventually over time, they come to realize that it's safe enough to say what's really going on. And sometimes it has nothing to do with the exact thing that you saw in that instant. Sometimes it's about something that happened before or that morning or what someone else did or said to them. And so if your kid escalates and it, and is verbally, you know, outwardly showing they're, they're upset or they take it all inward and, and you know, something is not right in either situation, give it, give it time, but don't, don't forget about it and come back around and ask these series of questions to help you. It's either a problem to be solved or it's a skill they need to be taught. Maybe it's something we assume they know how to do, but we shouldn't assume. And, and, and there's some teaching that we need to make sure they, they know, or it's a problem to be solved. And then there's a problem solving process that we walk them through on that end. It's only one of those two things when there's a challenging behavior. I appreciate that viewpoint because as a parent, we can get caught up in the multitude of things that are going on, but to take everything back to, it's either a problem to be solved or still to be taught. Okay. I can wrap my head around that and feel like I can help my child make progress. Doing all of this though, you said we need to be calm ourselves do you have suggestions for good ways for parents to do that? So for me, what I do myself and what I, what I share for others is taking a conscious breath. And they say, if you give yourself 10 seconds, you'll actually really say something different and act differently than in the moment when you're heated and angry. The next time you get upset, challenge yourself and try this out count to 10. We teach this to, to the kids count to 10 and see if you don't say something different than you would have right when it happened, or if you would do something different than when it just happened, your brain literally will go and move into a different process. I'm not going to get into the whole science of it all. So we teach kids to count to 10, or we also just talk about taking three deep breaths. Sometimes uh, it's, it's like, at work, at school with my staff, sometimes a teacher will say something and it will just get under my skin. And I will literally come back to my office, sit in my office, and we teach this to kids. We teach them to put their little fingertips together of their fingers and make, create like a, an imaginary ball in between your fingertips with your fingertips, fingertips touching and breathe. As you breathe in, you extend your fingers out. And as you exhale, you bring it in. We call it the ball breath. So you could actually teach this to your child and model it yourself. And here's a wild thing. A parent last week, the, their child said something. They literally just stepped over to the side of the room at home and started doing 
their ball breath and their kid literally looked at them because their kid and child had been taught that looked at them and stepped away to leave them alone and, and recognize that their parent was taking a mindful moment. So this is so incredible. You could teach your child this, you could model it, you could use it when you need it in the moment with your child. And they might even watch it and see you do it, which further teaches them. This is what we do in that moment when you feel this way. Well, that's how we learn as human beings. You said they're going to mirror you. That's because our brain is wired to do that. That's how our neurons fire is we mirror behavior. That's how we figure out how to survive in the group that we're raised in, right? Is to mirror that. So modeling is really key in teaching our kids anything. It's one of the reasons I'm such a big advocate for parents learning how to release, you know, release their stress and how to actually do self-care strategies because we tell our kids to do it, but telling them doesn't help them learn to do it. We really need to start with modeling it. And it's such a, that ball breath is such a visual signal. There's no interpretation. There's no trying to read somebody's body language or their tone. It's, it's very obvious. This is what I'm doing. I'm taking a moment to gain control of my own emotions. And then there's another one, which maybe I can explain it, even though you're listening, if you can imagine this, just spread your one hand out, spread your fingers wide, take, take your other finger, forefinger from your other hand and start at the base of your thumb on your, your hand that the fingers are spread wide. And as you breathe in, just follow and trace all the way up to your thumb. And then as you breathe out, go down and you're tracing all along your fingers. And then as you breathe in, you're going up your finger again. And as you breathe out, you're going back down. And as you breathe in, you're going up the middle finger. I like this one because it forces me to do five breaths. It's my favorite one. So when kids come upset to my office, I actually ask them because we had a mindfulness coach come in and teach all the kids this. I actually ask them, do you want to do the ball breath or the finger breath? And they choose. Because choice is very powerful. As you know, it gives them power. They feel in control of something where everything is out of control and, and they're upset. And then I give them a choice. Do you want to do four breaths or six breaths? And whatever they say, I only give them choices that they're okay with. So if you can give your kids choices on things that don't really matter, mom and dad and, and guardian, you're, you're going to get so much out of them. Um, pick colors. Like, do you want to use the blue pen or the red pen? But only give them choices you're okay with. That's really big. Don't give them two choices and one of them you're not so great with because if they pick it, you're going to be upset. So I, I give them the choice. And if they say four breaths, we sit there and do the breaths. And if they look calm and I'll say it, you look, you look calm and in control of your body. Are you ready to talk about this now? So those are two, the ball breath and the finger breath. Absolutely love them. And I think that again, in that parent child situation, when, when things have gotten very heated, would it make sense for us to also say, okay, I feel calm and in control of my body. Do you feel calm and in control of yours? And, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. And then ask if they want to talk about this now. Is that an, is that a, an appropriate sequence of questions and in that situation? Try that and see how that works for you. From my experience, I don't ask them that. I always just tell them what I notice. So if they don't look calm and in control of their body, 
I literally will just say once, you look like you need some time to get calm and in control of your body. When they physically are like just the physical from me looking at their physical features, looking calm and in control of your body. That's when I'll say, you look calm and in control of your body. Are you ready to talk about this? What about, and I don't know if this is just kids who are neurodivergent, but I've seen where saying something like you don't look calm and in control of your body really sets them off. What do you suggest about that? If you know it sets them off and you've experienced that, then you just know that that's not, that's that you're just going to wait till they're calm and in control of their body. When you see it, you're not going to say that. So if you know that you just won't use that, you're just going to use what you see and you'll just set the timer. If you, if you have a timer, I like timer. I don't know what it is. Sometimes kids like just looking at it, but it gives you time also. And then after the two minutes are up, you can just check in with them. How are you doing? If it looks like they need more time, you just set the timer. Saying less is really best for that space to get in, in touch with their feelings, their thoughts, and come down to that state where they can actually think clearly and talk clearly and logically and really respond to what you're saying without all that emotion. And I know that many behaviors are driven by emotion, but not all of them feel volatile in the moment. What about behaviors our kids might be exhibiting and yet they're very calm when they're doing that? I mean, as long as they're not hurting themselves or a danger or a harm to others, I just give them, give them, their, give them their space and just check in with them. And they'll tell you if they're ready to talk or they're not. And if they're not, you just know it's not, it's not time for it yet. And maybe dinner is going to happen or maybe an activity is going to happen, but definitely come back around to it with those questions of, I noticed earlier, da, 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 da. what was up with that? So it's okay that they might not be showing it, but if it's something that something, if you know something did happen, then just at a later time, try it, try it, try and ask that question and see if it doesn't help you to get to the root cause of like, what really went on there? Okay. So I'm thinking through different types of behaviors. And the next one that came to mind was just defiant behavior. You're asking them to do something or to get ready to go someplace the family's going and they're just giving harsh resistance. Talk me through that one, Karen. You know, because as we're going through these examples, I'm like, oh, now I see how that works. Even when it's the same words, it just helps to see it being used in different types of behaviors. Yeah. So there are moments in life that you're not going to have time to do this whole process. So this is a great process but you'll have to decide what you're going to do. So there are situations that where you have to go to work, you have to walk out the door, they're upset. You don't have time to sit there and let them calm down. So you're, you're going to have to make that decision. And, and it's a choice. It's that that's a hard choice, but there are times when you just have to say, this is how it is. This is, this is what the plan's going to be. And, and, and we're going with it. So I don't have like a quick fix for that situation you'll just have to realize that sometimes you'll be able to do this whole process. And other times you have to make a decision to be like, 
I know it's, it's tough, but because I said so X, Y, and Z and, and we're going with it. However it is that you would go with it in your, in your way. Would there be a logical follow-up later to that? Would it be, you know, because you said, Hey, I noticed fill in the blank yeah. was up with that. So would that be, but let's say we're, we're, we're getting out the door in the morning, classic, right. right? Yeah, You've got to get to work. They've got to be at school. The dog is peeing in the kitchen, whatever. <laughs> and so you're getting everybody out the door. And as you said, you don't necessarily have time for this. However, I think we always have time to take a couple of deep breaths just to keep ourselves calm. So we aren't adding fuel to their fire, right? So if we can do that from the calm space of I know this is a little tough right now, and this is what we need to do. And then later, when everybody's back home, be able to say, I noticed that you, I noticed that you, or it seemed like you felt resistant to leaving, or I noticed that you weren't ready to go, didn't want to leave. What's up with that? Yeah, because we go back to it's either a problem to be solved or a skill to be taught. And so it, when you go back later in the day or after school, hey, you know what? We noticed it was really tough getting out the door this morning. You know, you, you couldn't find your sock or you didn't want, that, want to wear that sweatshirt or, you know, you, you didn't put your pants on. What was up? What's up with that? Just pick one of those. Don't, don't, don't give them too many things to think about. And they will eventually open up to help us figure out, oh, we need to learn something about whatever it is, getting your outfit ready or whatever it is that it, that is, or it might show that there's a problem there. And now what can we do to solve that problem? And you actually ask them and, and wait it out. And, and again, there's that impregnable pause, but you're really getting them to think and become thinking problem solvers. And a lot of times we tell our kids so many things that they're not really thinking critically and problem solving on their own much anymore. And that's what's also incredible and powerful about this process because you're building a, a life skill in them that we know they need for the rest of their life. That is an incredibly valuable tool to learn a problem-solving approach. And so usually they're not used to doing this. So they look at you and they're like, I don't know. And I, I use my thing like, well, if you didn't know, what would you say? Let's just, let's just talk about one thing. I mean, ideally you want to try to get them to come out with like one, two or three things. I find it's really hard to come up with three things. That's like so many things, but if they can come up with one thing and I'm like, what else do you think we could try and do differently? If you come up with two and let them pick one, there's that ownership choice, buy-in power. They feel in control. Then the next day or the next time that happens, if you put that in place and it works, great. We solved that problem. If you try what they suggested and it doesn't work, you can go back to them and be like, yeah, what did you think of that? Mm, yeah, that, that, that didn't really work out so well. What else could we do differently in this situation? And it's amazing what kids come up with. And sometimes they come up with the most cockamamie ideas, Sandy. And I, and I told my teachers, I'm like, just go with it. If you're okay with it, you have to be okay with it. Go with it because it might be something creative that none of us thought of but it works for that child. And if you're okay with it, it's amazing. I, I just I absolutely love this process. I love it too. I mean, it's, it's fabulous and it is leading us into what I talk about as like coaching conversations. It's, as you said, what do you think? What do you want to do? How did you feel about that? 
Would you do this again? Would you do something else? What else could you do? Just helping them experience that problem-solving process is huge, absolutely huge. And we need to be in a calm space to do that. So the fact that you are teaching us how to calm ourselves and also teaching our kids how to calm themselves is just going to make all of that work so much better. And at the same time, as you said at the beginning, the challenging behaviors start to dissipate and the connection grows. And certainly, even if this is taking a long time, because sometimes it can take a while when we're changing things, even if it takes a long time, you're not bringing any harm to that relationship anymore. And you're starting to grow more connection. They will eventually see that you're honoring and respecting them in whatever they're feeling. Yeah, it's and and the things they come up with a lot of times are things we would have never thought of. And and it's I think that's why I just love this process so much. And they're coming up with them like they had a problem that they weren't solving. And now they just came up with the tools to solve it. It's so empowering. And then, and when you use this process over and over, over time, their brain gets used to solving and thinking of a solution where the first times you do this, and it might take multiple times of doing this and them really struggling and, and, and then help them out a little bit, give them a little bit of an idea. Um, and then the other thing I love to do, like, so say, you know, your child is mean to the sibling or mean to a kid at school, or, you know, does something to hurt someone's feelings. What I, the question that I love to follow up in these situations is, what do you think we should do to make this right? Mm-hmm. Again, you're putting it on them to think, how can I repair this? What can I do to bring back this relationship that got broken? And that's so powerful for kids and such a learning for them. And, and I tell teachers and you know even for parents, your child or your student, they might not be able to come to you and say they were sorry for something they did in your class to you or a parent. But if they, if they can write it or if they can do something, if they came up with it on their own to repair it in some way, you have to be okay with accepting it. Because sometimes I think we get in this rut of say, you're sorry. They didn't apologize. They didn't come back and say if they could, they should have just said they were sorry. Like we put a lot of weight on that, but there's other ways to show that you were sorry and sad about something. And sometimes kids are in a place where they, it's really hard for them to get to that point. And we have to give them that space. And can we give them that space? Yes, let's be the adult here and give them space, knowing that over time, we're going to help this child grow into that ability to make things right in their way. And we don't have time to do a huge conversation on this, but personally, I think our tendency to just say, hey, you have to apologize is not the right thing to teach kids because we often just drop it there when the important part is what can you do to make it right? Oh, I borrowed your iPod and I broke it. I borrowed your car and I crashed it. I'm sorry. Well, okay, but you need to get it repaired or you need to replace it or you need to, you know, if you hurt someone's feelings, as you said, you need to do the work to actually repair that relationship. And that is more than saying, I'm sorry, you know, depending what happened. It might take time. You might have to build up trust again. There are other things that can happen. And having the conversation with our kids around repairing any harm that we've done and taking responsibility for that is enormous. So I appreciate 
you going there with this conversation. And Karen, this is this is gold. So anyone who wants more from you, where can they find you? Well, if you've enjoyed everything that you've heard, I think you might like my free video series that I came up, uh, put together for you, which is called Three Steps to Happy Kids. It's right on my website, www.educationalimpactacademy.com and right on the front page. If you put in your email address so you can get all of the goodies and treats and exciting things I have coming up to help support you um, as your parenting, that'll give you access and your the, the videos will come right to your email. Perfect. And thank you so much for taking time to have this conversation today. Welcome, Sandy. Thank you. And mighty parents, thank you for being here. Remember to share the podcast with another parent. We're all dealing with challenging behaviors in one way or another. And remember that if you're here, if you're listening, you are a mighty parent. You got this. And I will see you next week. Mighty Parents, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Mighty Parenting Podcast. If you're ready for more, visit MightyParenting.com where you can get your free email series, How to Talk to Your Teen, with tips for communicating with your teen in a way that builds connection and communication. You can also get Mighty Parenting Plus so you can access our private podcast, which includes all the Mighty Parenting episodes, behind the scenes, guest highlights, and more. And of course, remember to share the podcast with another parent to support them on their parenting journey.